Good morning. Oh, David, King David. It is so hard to really believe that our beloved king got himself into this mess. It's all anybody talks about. I guess with good reason, right? I mean, have you ever had somebody you just idolized, thought the world of, and then one day you saw a whole different side of them? It's devastating. Know what I mean? Devastating. And King David, he was our hero from way back when he was a kid, when he killed that giant Philistine with just one little rock. As an adult, he was a warrior like no other. Do you know that he's the one that united the northern and the southern kingdoms? He's the one that moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? He was just the greatest king we ever knew. We all adored him. And then all this recent business started up. Disgraceful, just disgraceful if you ask me. Oh, I'm sorry, my name is Amana. I'm a cook in the king's court. And let me tell you, you hear a lot, and I mean a lot as a cook in the palace. Seriously, sometimes I think the royal family doesn't even know we exist. Of course, we would never betray the king with anything we saw or heard. Oh, no, no. Because as much as all Israel loves him, he is the king, and I know my place, I do, and that is not to question or not to betray the king. But really, I think how, how some of all this got started. The king spied a local woman. Well, we all knew who it was. It was Bathsheba. She was bathing. We knew her husband, too. He was a Hittite, but still, he served high up in King David's army. That would be like your special forces today. Anyway, there were all sorts of unkind comments about her after the fact, and people twisted the story to make it sound like she had enticed the king somehow. But if you know anything about our city, you know how closely built together our homes are. You know what little privacy we have. And I'm sure you know from reading the story that she wasn't the one on the roof. He was the one on the roof looking down on all of us. So yeah, she was bathing, but privately. And we all knew her, and there was nothing about her to suggest that she had asked for what was about to happen to her. Anyway, I saw her come to the palace one day. Oh yeah, because after seeing her, the king decided he wanted her, if you get my drift. And just as I mentioned, he was the king. What the king wants, the king gets. I mean, can you imagine the king's men knocking on your door and you answer the door and they tell you the king summons you to the palace? I mean, what are you going to say? No, I'm not going to go. I don't think so. You don't say no to a king. So as I said, I saw her come into the palace one day. I was getting some vinegar and oils from the cellar for that night's meal. I had already baked the bread because I'm telling you, if you don't do that first thing in the morning, you are behind from the get-go. Well, anyway, I was walking up from the cellar and I saw two of the king's men taking Bathsheba through the back of the palace, where the cooking courtyard is, and up the back stairs. I couldn't imagine what was going on. It all seemed very odd. She was quiet, didn't make a sound or say a word, just was led on along. Well, as I said, I was getting ready to start the evening meal, and I just really had lost track of time. I had so many cucumbers and onions I had cut up that day, and I need to grind the wheat for the next day's bread, of course, and I had to get the lamb on the spit. And so you can imagine my shock when it was getting to be dusk, and I glanced up, 
and Bathsheba was being escorted by the two men down the back stairs and out the side doors of the palace. What was going on, I wondered. I wondered if something terrible had happened to her husband Uriah in battle. But Bathsheba left as quietly as she had come in. She didn't appear to be a woman who had received terrible news from the king. Well, soon enough, I forgot all about it. But then, a few months later, hmm, there started to be rumblings in the palace, odd things happening. Now, the army was off in Reba with Joab, the king's main commander, in charge out there in the field. I never was sure why David had not gone on that mission. He loved a good battle. But for some reason, none of us could figure out he was staying in Jerusalem for this one. But no one feared. Joab was a great military leader. Anyway, here we are in the middle of a military skirmish, and who the heck shows up on the palace steps? Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> well, like I said, he was part of the king's 30 men, his top regime. What was he doing back in Jerusalem in the middle of a conflict? Oh, maybe there was important news. Maybe something terrible had happened to Joab. The king just was not in the habit of pulling one of his top officers off the front line of the battle scene. Well, I'll tell you, it got stranger and stranger. The king seemed jovial to see Uriah, had him dine with him. I overheard him ask Uriah how the battle was being waged. How were things on the front? It was very casual, friendly sort of conversation. Certainly not something you dragged a soldier off the front line for. And then, as I cleared the dishes from them, I overheard the king send Uriah home to see his wife. And he was quite clear about what that should entail, if you understand what I mean. It was very odd. But it got odder still, because the next morning, I stumbled upon Uriah asleep at the palace gates with the guards. He hadn't gone home to his wife at all. One of the guards, that really cute one that started right after I did, anyway, he told me that Uriah would not do as the king suggested because it was a dishonor to all the men who were still on the battlefield. It was still war in his mind whether he was there or not. So that night he ended up dining with the king again, and boy, oh boy, did they tie one on. I had to fetch so much wine for the cellar. By the time I hit the bed that night, my feet were killing me. But once again, Uriah stayed at the palace. And the next day he was off, off to the battlefield. He never did see his wife while he was back. Not long after this, word came back to the king with a report on the war. It seemed like Joab had made some bad military decisions, and quite a few men were lost. In fact, poor Uriah the Hittite had been killed. David seemed to take it all in stride. I guess if you're a great military commander, you get used to the cost of war. But I wondered about poor Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. <laughs> well, I didn't have to wonder too long. Guess who showed up at the palace not long after Uriah's death? Mm -hmm, yes, siree. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, came into the court, obviously pregnant. Well, now things were starting to add up. Bathsheba summoned to the palace. Uriah summoned back from the war, but he never sees her. He's dead. She's pregnant. Timing did not add up in the king's favor. Let me tell you, did this set the tongues of Jerusalem wagging? I will say, though, the king did the right thing and actually married her, and the baby was born in the palace, a little boy. 
Shortly after the baby was born, I was filling the water jugs around the palace, and I was out on the roof of the portico when I realized the king was in the lounge. He was alone, but soon Nathan came into him. They greeted each other warmly, and then I heard Nathan begin to tell the king a story. It was about a rich man who had lots of herds of sheep and a poor man who had but one little lamb and the little lamb meant everything to the poor man. It was the oddest story. I couldn't imagine for the life of me why Nathan was wasting the king's time with such a tale. But I was stuck out on the portico, didn't want to interrupt or be discovered, and so I had to listen to the rest of it. Nathan continued the story, saying that a traveler came to stay with the rich man, and in providing hospitality to the traveler, the rich man stole the poor man's lamb for the dinner that they shared. Can you imagine that? How cheap and cunning and stingy of him. Here he had herds of livestock, and instead he steals this one lamb from this poor man. All I could think was, what a terrible story. Well, I wasn't the only one incensed. You should have heard the king. He just exploded. He went on and on about the rich man's sin and what he ought to do to set it straight. And then I could not believe my ears. With more boldness than I have ever heard, Nathan said, you are the man. I froze in my spot, holding my breath more tightly than before, waiting for the next explosion, waiting for the king to throw a tirade at Nathan, throw him out of the court or worse, waiting for the king to say, who do you think you are, Nathan? Who do you think you're speaking to? Do you know who I am? Waiting really for the king to issue Nathan's death order. The silence was excruciating. And when the king spoke, once again, I couldn't believe my ears. With unbelievable sadness in his voice, the king, the king said, I have sinned against the Lord. Just like that. Just that simple, just that beautifully, just that unbelievably. Well, slowly I started to breathe again, but my legs were shaking and I started to sink down onto the roof. I sat there with tears welling up and through my throat and spilling out of my eyes. I had to be careful. I couldn't be discovered now. But what I had heard was something I had never experienced before. I was amazed at Nathan's courage, just amazed. Who indeed dares to go up against a king? Who? And the clever way in which Nathan wrapped his accusation? Wow, I thought, I could really learn something from that. He didn't attack the king outright. No, he let the king do that to himself. By telling a story that sucked in the king and me, he allowed space for the truth to be told. He had both the king and me in the web of his tail before either of us ever realized what was happening, what he was up to. Oh, it was a very clever way to speak truth to power, a very clever way. I kept thinking how wonderful it would be to have someone like Nathan to help me, to help me when I lost my way, to point out how I had strayed from God, couldn't we all use a Nathan, a loving truth-teller in our lives? But I suppose there are not many with that sort of calm, cleverness, and courage. 
And I wondered, would I ever have enough courage myself to speak the truth to someone that needed to hear it? Would I be willing to risk all that Nathan had risked out of love for another and for God? Then I realized that the real miracle of what I had just witnessed was the king and his reaction. He never defended himself. Not for one minute did he try to justify what he had done with Bathsheba or to Uriah. Not once. No explaining, no backpedaling, no pulling on his royal status, no leaning on his power, none at all. Just the simple, humble admission that he had sinned against the Lord. And I could hear the pain in his voice, in his confession. Deep, desperate pain. Pain that I have known when I have done wrong. But have I ever been able to give voice to my own evil like that? Have I been able to admit to another out loud my terrible sins? What was it in King David that allowed him to hear, really hear Nathan? What sort of powerful king can also admit such weakness. How easy it could have been for him to simply denounce Nathan and throw him out of the palace. He was, after all, the king. But what I had learned was that the king was more like us than maybe we wanted to know. His actions with Bathsheba and Uriah were the ugly stuff that life is made of, that we are all made of, king or not. He is really just like us. And while I may not be a king or a queen, I am just as capable of the horrific wrongs that David had committed. And I am probably more capable of trying to justify my sins, ignore them, or wash them away as someone else's fault. No one, king or servant, likes to hear the truth about their brokenness. And so as much as I longed for my own Nathan, I began to also long for the kind of heart that King David had, the kind of heart that allowed him to accept and admit his sin. Was it his overwhelming love of God that gave him that courage? Courage to speak the truth of his brokenness and know that somehow, without reason, God would still love him? I sat there crying for a long time. Nathan left almost as abruptly as he had come in. I think the king stayed on a while alone, but I was so lost in my own heart and thoughts, I'm not sure when I realized it was safe to come out from the portico roof. My body was stiff from trying to be so still and hold my breath so quietly. It felt like I'd been running all day long, exhausted and sore. Of course, I never, ever mentioned to anyone what I had heard that day. And all was not well for the king, even though God's steadfast love for us endures forever. Sadness is still part of life. The poor baby that resulted from David's sordid lust of Bathsheba died shortly after Nathan's incrimination of the king. Oh, did the king grieve that loss. Later, the pair had another son. They named him Solomon, and I'm sure you know his story. But for me, 
That was a day that is forever imprinted on my heart, a day when I heard a courageous man tell another that he had sinned, a day when I heard the sinner courageously hear and admit their brokenness. And I wondered, what will it take for me to be like both of them, to be like Nathan when I need to speak truth to power, to be like David when I need to hear and admit my own sin and brokenness? What will it take for me to be more like them? I think it's God's love it will take.